In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we God, amen. Um, I'd like to, this evening, speak about um, an incident that happened in the life of Abraham. Uh, Abraham's life is important because he was the first one who, in which God will establish a covenant with him. Um, and, the, and this is just the beginning of the restoration of mankind once again. Uh, of course, uh, his story is in the book of Genesis. Um, I believe it begins around chapter 12-ish. Um, of course, what preceded him was, of course, the creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, Noah, uh, and then uh, we begin uh, with Abraham. Um, and as we know, uh, Abraham, God called him from his father's house, and he told him to follow me, because um, he saw something in Abraham that desired to know the true God. His uh, father, uh, does anybody remember what his father's name was? Nehor. Okay, good. So, uh, his father was pagan, actually. <coughs> And this is why God called him out of his father's house, is because in order to begin a relationship, a covenant with God is saying, with me, you have to put away the idols. You have to be away from them. So we called him out, uh, but his father followed him, as we know, right? He followed him to Haran, which is, uh, I believe, Syria. Uh, and he stayed there, and then until what happened, until his father died. And then when his father died, he called him again to go to Canaan. Um, so Abraham is very experienced in his life with God, as being filled with instruction and obedience on the side of Abraham. Does anybody ever remember the first time where Abraham went somewhere without God's instruction? Egypt. Egypt. He went to Egypt. He went to Egypt because, uh, of course, of the famine. And he went there on his own. Uh, and he got into a little bit of a trouble, him and Sarah got into a little bit of trouble with Pharaoh, okay? Uh, this wouldn't be the first time he made this mistake. He makes this mistake again uh, in chapter 20, which we'll discuss today. So if you can go to Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 19, this was the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, we're all familiar with this story how the three angels were coming to meet. This is, you know, we know the three angels that came to meet Abraham. Uh, and one of them, of course, was the, uh, the Lord himself. Uh, which, and Abraham tried to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. It didn't work. And we all know the rest of the story. Two of the angels went there, um, uh, tried to save Lot and his family and ended up only saving Lot and his, uh, his girls. Um, does anybody know what happened to the husbands of the children? Did they stay behind in the city? Yeah. You know why? They didn't believe him? Hmm? They didn't believe him? Yeah. They didn't believe him. They actually said they thought he was joking. They thought he was joking. And I always look at them as, you know, <laughs> as an example, because some people, when we look at the spiritual matters, we think things are so far off, and it's like almost like a joke, right, where, oh, it's not for me, 
we can do this later. Always this idea of procrastination. Um, and they're a good example of, you know, paying for the procrastination. We never know when our hour will come, um, so we always try to be prepared. Uh, so immediately after this whole incident of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's camp was close enough to where he saw this uh, happen. So and that's why in verse 1 in chapter 20 it begins and says what? And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. So it's almost as if Abraham saw the sin and said, I need to get as far as I can from it. Or I'm not far enough because I can still see it. And this provides for us the valuable lesson number one, which is, you know, fleeing from evil. And every, not only every evil, but every form of evil. St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, abstain from every form of evil. So it's not, you know, uh, just what is evil, but what can potentially be evil. This is the form of evil. Or anything that maybe just resembles evil, or uh, could develop into something evil. Sometimes we go with that attitude of, okay, it's not evil, and I can, I know my boundaries, and I will control myself, right? So, but this is, okay, this is risky, because it's very easy to fall, right? If I hang around with people, or if I go to a, a bar or a club or whatever with my co-workers, and say, okay, I'm just going to go but not drink. But then this is an abstaining every form of sin, because certainly while I'm there, I could stumble in my eye, I could stumble in a word, I could stumble in a thought, all of these things. So Abraham looked at this and said, I'm going to get a little a bit further. So he goes uh, south to a place called Gerar. <clears throat> and it says, Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Uh, the word Abimelech here means, uh, My father is king. Ebi is my father, and Malik is, uh, is king. Uh, and some people believe there are two opinions about who this person is. Number one is they believe that Abimelech was his real name. He was named Abimelech. And if, the reason why there's question is because Isaac will run into the same, per, the same name. So they said, okay, this could be the same person, and his name is Abimelech. Or Abimelech can be the title of the king of Gerar. Similar to similar as Pharaoh is in Egypt, right? Regardless of uh, Ramses one, two, three, four, whatever his name is, still called what Pharaoh, right? So this these are the two opinions, you know, that are kind of uh, kind of uh, float among the fathers. Um, and Abimelech was honest man. He wanted to take Sarah and marry her for good reason. Um, let me know how old Sarah was at this time. Ninety years old. So something about her attracted the king. Either she found the fountain of youth and she was gorgeous at ninety, or her character and her quality. He saw that she was a virtuous and righteous woman. I probably think it's the latter because no, I don't know anybody that's found the fountain of youth yet. Um, and this just goes to show us. Whether I'm a female, or whether I'm a man who is looking maybe potentially to get married, what are we looking for, right? Abraham here chose a wife, yes, in her young days were beautiful, but ultimately he first chose her because of her quality, right? And this, I think, 
uh, unfortunately escapes a lot of men in our society, is looking for the quality of the woman, not simply the outward adornment of the woman. Of course, there must be some physical attraction, well, things won't work out, but that shouldn't be the one and only you know, uh, goal. There's a third uh, possibility, as uh, was told to us before, like the calendars was like not was off back then. Uh, so like, that it was uh, Christina Aziz uh, back in the back when we were studying Genesis. Said Mary said she said uh, she said that uh, the calendars were off. Like there was not, it was not a three sixty five back then. It wasn't what? It was not three sixty five days. A year was not three sixty five days apparently. How? Like, this was, like their calculation was off. So this was way, I mean, after, I mean, maybe before the creation, and they, or the first four days, even before the sun, but after that, yeah. they had even, if you look in the ancient uh, calendars that Egypt used, mm -hmm. it was all based on the sun, the solar mm -hmm. calendar. So those would equate to pretty close to the But now that's accurate. Um, maybe it could be that he was so much older. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> They're quite possibly. Back then they lived a lot, so now he was young compared to like 300, right? Probably. <laughs> okay. So, whatever it might be, huh? He already had children. Yeah? yeah. Maybe he didn't care about having children. Another reason. Like, yeah. Well, she's like good birth control. <laughs> she's done, right? Natural birth control. Okay. So, he took Sarah. Uh, he took Sarah into. Um, his home. And then what? It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So it seems to me, uh, and we can know this uh, in verse 17 in the same chapter, that as soon as Sarah went into uh, the house of uh, Abimelech, he got sick. And apparently all the women in the house stopped bearing children. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit at the end, uh, about this point. But then he says, you're a dead man. I don't know, you know, maybe I could take this from somebody else. But when God says you're a dead man, <laughs> that's a scary thing, right? This is a scary thing. There's no escape. Um, so what does he do in his defense? And the Amalek, of course, is pagan. He doesn't know God or anything. But he knows that the person who's talking to him uh, is, in a dream is an authoritative figure. And God, and Abi, uh, but Abimelech uh, had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother, and the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands I have done this. We can learn a lot from this guy, Abimelech, and I think maybe, you know, uh, um, this is why it was chosen to be put into the Bible, this experience. First thing he says here is, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation? But the offense is not against the nation. Who did the offense? The king, right? They didn't go and say, you know, and uh, he made a decree that you can marry anybody you want to marry. He didn't make a decree that affected the nation. But he took one, uh, one lady to be his wife. But then he attributes this sentence from God to not only affect himself, but also uh, affect his whole nation, affect the nation. And this is the right idea of anybody who's in any kind of leadership position uh, or anybody in an influential position. When I sin, 
actually anybody, regardless of your leadership position or not, if a person sins, it will affect the people around him. And if we are in a leadership position, it affects those who are entrusted to us. And sometimes we might ask ourselves, okay, why do we always pray for the Pope? Why do we always pray for the Bishop? Why do we pray? Because, you know, they need the most prayer. Because if Satan tempts the patriarch or the, the priest, and then this priest stumbles, the congregation potentially can stumble with him, right? If Satan comes and he tempts the bishop, and the bishop stumbles, potentially he can take the whole diocese. They affect the whole diocese, right? God forbid if Satan tempts the patriarch and the <coughs> patriarch stumbles, it can affect the whole church, right? Just like Nestorius, right? Who was the patriarch, uh, and because of his, you know, um, beliefs, the church stumbled. <clears throat> and then he says what? And the innocence of my heart, I have done, and integrity of my heart, I have, uh, I have done this. So basically he's telling God what? You know what? I did this honestly. I want to take advantage of her. I wasn't just trying to, you know, have fun. No. I really wanted to marry her. I saw she was a righteous man, a righteous woman. And, you know, her, uh, the person who was with her was her brother. So there's no, no harm here, right? Um, uh, and then here again, his sin was against God. He says what, um, uh, we'll see this actually in a minute. Let's look at chapter verse 6. Um, then God responded to Abimelech and he said, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Look at these two. Yes. Why did God rebuke Abimelech for the action instead of <laughs> Oh, that is a million dollar question. Good question. Why did, why did God appear to Abimelech rather than Abraham? <laughs> Who's the one that messed up? Abraham. Abraham. Abraham is the one that messed up. And who's the prophet? Abraham. Abraham. Who knows who God is? Abraham. Abraham. Everyone doesn't have a clue. Everyone doesn't have a clue. This is a very good question. Um, I'll answer. I'll answer it now, and then we'll, we'll see the details later. Um, uh, I believe you know that uh, one of the reasons that God appeared to Abimelech and not to Abraham is that um, to uh, preach to Abimelech. For Abimelech to know that there is a prophet and to fear the prophet and to fear God who sends the prophet. So he almost appears to Abimelech although Abraham is the one who messed up. So sometimes God uses the servants when they mess up, he uses it to preach. Can you think of another example in the Old Testament where the prophet of God messed up, didn't listen to God, and God still used him to preach a nation? Moses? How did he mess up? Like when he struck the rock. Okay. And dropped the tablets. Okay. And how did he use that to preach the nation? Why? Well, I think he had him drop the tablets myself so he could make them over again. <clears throat> Okay, but the, here in this in this uh, um, scenario, he was already the prophet, and the people knew that. 
But maybe if you want to back up a little bit with Moses when he killed the Egyptian. Remember that? Before, when he was still in Pharaoh's house, he killed the Egyptian. And he messed up. And then he went to, um, uh, what was the city? Midian. Mid Midian. He went to uh, Midian and stayed there for 40 years, right? And then he came back and God appeared to him in the burning bush and said, Go and feed my people. So he messed up, but through his mess up, it led to him being the prophet. But maybe a more, uh, even clearer example. Where God told him to go one way and he went the exact opposite. Oh, Jonah. Jonah. Remember what happened to Jonah? He said, go to Nineveh. And he said, no, I'm going to Tarshish. Go the opposite way. <laughs> and then what happened? While in the midst of his mess up, he got up on the boat, right? While he was on the boat, what was he doing? And he was dead asleep. And then the, the, you know, the Bible describes it being very boisterous. So it's it going crazy. I don't know how he could sleep without getting motion sickness or something. But he was fast asleep. And all the sailors up top were doing what? Screaming to their gods. Right? Each one to their god. None of them answered. So then they said, who's left? Jonah. Let's get him. Maybe his god will answer. They go down. Jonah, they wake him up. Jonah screams to his god. You know, I know exactly what's going on. Throw me overboard. And the sea will uh, be calm. They did that and the sea was calm. What do you think those sailors realized or learned? Uh, his God is the one that's real, right? So here, although Abraham is the one who messed up, but God is still using his, you know, uh, his sin or his disobedience to preach. And this is a very valuable lesson to anybody who serves in any capacity, is that God can use even our weakness to preach his name. You know, if I think anybody who serves God, you know, uh, faithfully will, will realize this. And maybe before they realize this, they realize how weak I am. And maybe I'll say, I can't serve because I'm weak. I don't know what to say to people if I preach to them, you know. Um, at, by gosh, the Christ himself, he chose fishermen. He didn't choose scholars, right? And look what they did, right? So we need to have faith when we speak. That even if I say something wrong, or even if I make a mistake, or even if I sin, that God can use this even as uh, 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 to preach His name. Um, <clears throat> so this is one reason you know, why I think is to preach the people of uh, of uh, Gerar. I think God saw that Abimelech was a good man, and He said, "You know what? There's hope in this in this city. Let me send them Abraham. You know, and when Abraham comes." He's going to mess up, and I'm going to appear to Abimelech and talk with him, you know, and he's going to see me in a dream, and then uh, we'll see what's going to even happen with Abraham, what else Abraham does. Does that mean that God made Abraham sin? Like, no, of course not. That doesn't make sense. St. James tells us, yeah, maybe we shouldn't. We can't, you know, God doesn't make somebody to stumble. Right? But he used his sin for the glory of his name. Um... And uh, the other point that I wanted to make here in verse 6 was that God himself, he said to him, For I withheld you from sinning against me. If you were to ask Abimelech, who is it that you're sinning against? He would probably say, Sarah, I took the guys in front of life. I mean, I'm sitting against uh, Abraham and Sarah, right? But God here, before he even mentions anything about Sarah, he actually doesn't mention Sarah. He mentions himself. And this, you know, uh, is a very clear example that sin 
at its core is always against God. Sin at its core is always against God, first and foremost. Why? Because He's the lawgiver. He's the lawgiver. So that's why whenever we go to repent and we confess, the reconciliation has to be twofold. It has to be, be between me and God and me and the person that I offended. So the, it has to be both parts. So the part that we heal between me and my uh, friend or me and my colleague or whatever is the reconciliation. I apologize, I ask for forgiveness uh, and, and move forward. The other one is the confession part, where we actually go to the priest and we confess before, uh, uh, to God before the priest, and we say, forgive me because I've done so and so. And we get the absolution from the priest and we get that forgiveness. So we get the forgiveness from our neighbor and also from God. Uh, so, some, you know, uh, so all sin, regardless, is against God and needs to be repented and confessed about uh, to God. Mm -hmm. If God withheld Abimelech from sinning, why doesn't he use that more often? I mean, maybe he doesn't, we just don't know. But why not use that as a mode of our salvation? So he didn't force him here by his hand. He, uh, he, the timing. It'll be more clear later. Okay, it'll be more clear later. I don't want to uh, jump around, but it'll be more clear later. The timing of things. Uh, and we'll see that it wasn't really, you know, God, you know, holding him back, but actually he was a good man. And we'll see that at the end. Um, <clears throat> and this is why this point about sinning against God, this is why David said in Psalm 50, against you only have I sinned and done this evil before you. We repeat this every time we pray in Psalm 50. Against you only I have sinned and done evil before you. Um, and then, uh, Another, also another good example is Joseph. Remember when Joseph was with Potiphar's wife, and she tried to uh, uh, seduce him into sinning, and he said, how can I sin and do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph considered this act not against himself, not against Potiphar's wife, not against Potiphar, but against God, first and foremost. I bet you if we considered all of the, the sins that we do against God, first and foremost, it might change our perspective a little bit. But sometimes when I cut somebody off, I think it's against the guy in the car. When I curse somebody, I think it's, the, it's against the guy in front of me. Uh, when I uh, uh, look at somebody in an inappropriate way, I look at that person. I don't look at God. But I think if we saw God behind everybody and every sin that we did, and that it's against Him, it would change the way we would think. And maybe... Um, uh, uh, make us a bit more keen and uh, not following. Verse 7 says what? <clears throat> now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. So now God is revealing to Abimelech who Abraham is. He is a prophet of mine. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not uh, restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So, um, what he's saying here is now, now go to the prophet and have him pray for you and you're going to live. I mean, again, if I was Abimelech, I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> right? He's the one that messed up, right? God's appearing to me, threatening me, and now I'm going to go ask the guy to pray for me. And he's the one that messed up, not me. 
So here we see God was teaching Abimelech something. Is that the prophet of God, I want you to go to him. And who's talking to him, by the way? God. So God could easily say, okay, just say you're sorry to me and we'll call it a day. No. Even from the Old Testament, he's establishing in the order of things. He has a messenger. He has a, 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 a message of grace that he wants to give to the people through his chosen ones, right? Through certain individuals. Just like in the New Testament, when he chose the twelve, right? He chose the twelve. The twelve weren't just the random twelve from all the people. Nor were they, um, you know, just anybody. But they were chosen. He told them, I chose you, you didn't choose yourselves. Or you didn't choose me, right? I chose you. So these are particular hand-picked twelve. Yes, we call them special, right? Doesn't mean God doesn't love you know different people, but He knows these are the ones that will be re respond to Him. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and we see here that God set this rule that I want uh, you to go through uh, certain individuals, and that's why Saint James tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And in Abimelech's case, it's going to save his life, right? Um, uh, and here we see that the role of the people of God is to pray for the people. This is their primary function. primary function of any minister is to pray for his people. Um, you know, uh, uh, whether it be you know, the Old Testament prophet or the priest or the New Testament clergy, or any servants, anybody who's serving uh, God's people, their primary uh, function is to pray uh, for them. Um, <clears throat> uh, this brings maybe another point that we can, you know, kind of interject here, is that God is asking Abraham to pray for Abimelech, and this would save his life. Certainly God knows what he's going to do. Certainly God knows uh, what Abimelech, what is in Abimelech's heart. Right? But he still wants him to go through Abraham. So if Abraham at that time prayed for Abimelech and he was saved, do you think that he, you know, if we ask him to pray for us now, he wouldn't hear us and he wouldn't pray for us? Certainly, right? We don't believe that the people, the righteous people who have preceded us, are dead and gone and don't care about us, right? Um, I don't think, you know, this is, uh, or I know this isn't the case. If you remember in the New Testament, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? Who is in that story? Who, who, who's, uh, how does he describe heaven? He says this in Abraham's bosom, right? So he describes heaven or uh, paradise as being Abraham's bosom, the place of rest is Abraham's bosom. And when the rich man is asking, uh, uh, when he's speaking, he's speaking to who? Speaking to Abraham, saying to him, Father Abraham, have Lazarus dip his uh, finger in water and come put it on my tongue. And Abraham responds to him. At this time when Christ was saying this, was Abraham alive in the flesh? No, he certainly wasn't. But he was still active. Right, so when we speak about why the the church, um, you know, has the intercession of saints, it's very clear in these uh, uh, examples or in this example in particular that no, the people who have preceded us 
are not dead and gone and don't care about us. No. You know, just like if we would, you know, any of us had a loved one who departed that was very dear to us, maybe a grandfather, grandmother, whatever, and we have their picture in our houses. Even people who are non-believers, they'll talk to them, right? Um, <clears throat> have any of you ever seen the movie Coco? So um, there is a, it's a recent Disney movie from last year, but it's based about, uh, around a, uh, a Mexican tradition that was actually something that was from, I think, the Aztecs. Um, so it's very old. And the idea of here was what? That each year there was a day of the dead um, in which the spirits that are past could kind of cross over to the living. And, you know, the people who are living you know, can... Uh, um, can interact with them. But the idea here is what? Is they have to have their picture up or they have to have them some, somewhere in their memory. So even in non-Christian, you know, traditions, the idea of there is a commune, somewhat of a communion between the living and the dead is there. Um, uh, so, uh, and I think not that Christianity just kind of took this from them, but I think this is God speaking in all the different traditions uh, and making it, of course, more clear in the Christian revelation. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it's beneficial for us you know, to pray for one another. Um, that's why uh, um, St. Paul in many of his epistles always asks the people to pray for him. Um, <clears throat> so let's move on in verse 8. <coughs> So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. This is exactly what God wanted. He wanted uh, Abimelech to preach to the people in Gerar. So he woke up in the morning, told them, and the fear of God came to all those people in the land. Then maybe it would start off as being they were scared of him, right? Because now this threat not only affects Abimelech, but affects all of us. But at the end of the day, they, uh, uh, they heard about God. Um, <clears throat> and he told them everything. He told them how he wanted to marry Sarah, and I did this honestly. And God appeared to me in a dream and told me this, and I responded to him, and he told me that. So he kind of told them, you know, uh, everything. And he rose up early in the morning. Anytime we hear this in Scripture, this early in the morning, this means that this was something that was important, and uh, he didn't delay Early in the morning. We also saw this when uh, when God asked Abraham to offer Isaac. Right? He rose up early in the morning. This is somebody who's eager to hear uh, or to fulfill the will of God, to um, to talk with Him. Uh, that's why the psalmist says, that, you know, those who rise in the, uh, early in the morning will find me or will see me. So there's something about raising up early. There's a certain eagerness of wanting to meet and speak uh, with uh, the Lord. So Abimelech rose early. He wasn't going to delay uh, the message that God wanted him to send to his people. That's why the liturgy is early? Uh, yeah, relatively. You know, it can always be earlier. <laughs> you know, as long as the people come late, it'll always be early. <laughs> if everybody came on time, it'd be late. <laughs> um... Then Abi, uh, so, let's see. then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. 
Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? So here we see what Abimelech reads Abraham and says, Listen, what we think? <laughs> what we think? Why did you do this thing? Right. So, well, who's rebuking who here? Abimelech is rebuking the prophet. Right. Typically, when you think of things, it should be what? The opposite. The prophet rebuking the people. Top down, right? And this is how we sometimes get in the mode of where God communicates to us top down. The patriarch talks to the bishop, the bishop talks to the priest, the priest talks to the deacons, the deacons talk to the servants, or the, or the, the priest talks to the servants, the servants talk to the people, and everybody's rebuked, and the, and the people, the parents, rebuke their children, and the children rebuke their sustenance. That's just how it goes, right? That's just how everything is top down. But here God is saying, no, it's, it's not like that. The non-believer here is actually rebuking the believer, right? Um, it's just like this can happen to us in our life. Uh, I remember hearing once uh, uh, somebody was telling me how they had a co-worker who was uh, the Muslim faith. And in the middle of work, the guy, uh, I forget what time it was, he pulled out his rug and laid it down and started praying. And people were, you know, talking about him, saying, well, does it have to pray here, you know, this isn't a place for it, go somewhere else, we'll do all this. This was their comments. But if you think about it, this person, although he may not be worshipping the right God, but what is he doing here? He's being very faithful in his prayers. So actually, if I look at him and I judge him and say, what is he doing? Then I have to look at myself and ask myself, did I say my prayers before I left that morning? And if the answer is no, then he's rebuking me. Just like the story that happened with St. Macarius, that maybe some of us are familiar with. One of his disciples was walking in the desert and found a pagan priest. This was early in the morning, six, five, six o'clock in the morning. And when this, this younger uh, uh, monk or novice came to this man, he starts rebuking him. He says, you're worshipping idols, you're worshipping the wrong god. And the priest uh, of this uh, god, he was, you know, started to get annoyed at the guy, and then he ended up beating him. He beat him up, and he left him, you know, there on the side of the road. Eventually, he got himself up and went back. And the next day, St. Macarius came. And now the priest saw the guy dressed, another man dressed the same way. So the guy is rolling up his sleeves. All right, another one. All right, come for more? I got you. So the guy comes, uh, St. Macarius comes early in the morning and sees him. And then, before he says anything, St. Macarius says, I see that you rose up, you know, uh, very early to pray. This is a very, you know, a very good thing. And he compliments him about how he rose early. And then he says, uh, there was a guy here yesterday, you look just like you. Uh, but he, he started, you know, uh, rebuking me and was you know, arguing with me and yelling at me. Are you guys of the same faith? I told him yes, he was. Uh, so he's like, I, I, you know, I don't understand. Um, so we see from this, you know, story that... You know, St. Macarius found the thing that was praiseworthy, and he, and he praised him, right? So even, you know, uh, uh, you know in, in this scenario, the non-believer rebuked that monk in St. Macarius' story, because he was uh, rising up early. So sometimes non-believers, or people who are younger than us, our children can rebuke us, right? Um, you know, there's the verse in the Psalms that says, Out of the mouth of babes and sufferings thou shalt prepare to perfect praise, right? Um, <clears throat> and we'll see sometimes that children say things, and it really, you know, kind of opens our eyes. 
especially if we do something uh, 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 and we don't know it, that's wrong. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was uh, when I was first ordained. I'm just I'm trying to get you know the hang of this this priesthood thing. Uh, so you know, I was responding. I was with him, taking care of him, and I was responding to like some emails and text messages and all these things. And then uh, he looks at me. And he's like, "Daddy, put down your phone." And he was all like maybe one and a half or two years old. And I was like, "What do I do? <laughs> this can wait, you know." So even he's at one and a half years old or two years old, and he's saying, "You know what? Give me your attention." Are you here with me? Give me your attention. And he said it in the way he can. So it's not about who gives us the rebuke, but whether we have the ear to listen or to heed. Because this could be coming, you know, from another, this could be the voice of God. <clears throat> um, and here, I guess we can say that we can praise Abimelech. Because as soon as God told him that this was a sin, he stopped. Can you think of an example of somebody in the Bible where they were rebuked of marrying somebody unlawfully and they continued with it anyways? And, and no? Like, not stand? Uh, oh, well, I, um, the John the Baptist was telling Herod. <laughs> Herod, very good, excellent, excellent. Uh, you know John the Baptist rebuked Herod very clearly, openly, publicly, and with no wasn't playing around. What did he do? He captured him and killed him. Right. Captured him and killed him. Right. And he continued. Um, there is, uh, you know, nowadays this idea of infidelity and cheating is, is rampant. You know, there's uh, websites, you know, uh, of course we all heard of this maybe a couple years ago when there, there was a leak with the Ashley Madison. Anybody heard that, of that website, Ashley Madison? It's a cheating website. It's horrible, and it baffles me. Sixty million people are registered on this website, and the website is geared towards married people who want to cheat. And that's it. That's it. But this is, you know, you know, uh, a very sad scenario where God looks at this sin and says, you know, this is um, one of the sins that I hate, and then this website, you know, is created. And 60 million people are, uh, are engaged. God have mercy. <clears throat> and Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, they will kill me on account of my wife. So they said, Abimelech says, What were you thinking when you did this to us? And Abraham's response is, Because I was sure the fear of God was not in this, uh, in this place. This is Abraham's second mistake, where he does what? He judges the book by its cover, right? He looked at Abimelech and said, it's got to be a man who doesn't fear God, right? How many times have we looked at somebody and says, this guy's got to be so-and-so. This person's got to be so-and-so. This reminds me of uh, anybody who attended the Bold Conference last year. It's the Evangelism Conference. They had a speaker, uh, and uh, he was a convert to uh, Coptic Christianity. And, uh, Hello, young. Yeah. And if you look at the guy, he got like tattoos on his arm. He's huge. Looks like a biker. You know. So if you would walk through the church, I was like, this guy is, can't fear God. But then we listen to the man speak. He's a scholar. <laughs> he did his study. He did his research. 
right? So we often, sometimes, we judge a, book, judge a book by its cover, you know, but we don't wait till we hear a person speak. Or we'll say, oh, this person looks foolish, or this guy's foolish, and then when we hear a speaker, we're like, okay, I was wrong, okay? So this was Abraham's second mistake, is that he judged the book by its cover. The guy with the tattoos should not, shouldn't, um, you know, show them off. He should cover them. Yeah, I, I mean, he did, he did, he did, and he, he did, but you can kind of see it's still underneath it, but he was very respectful. But he said up front he was a drugs, and he had a dark vest. Yeah, which, 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 this is the problem, this is the problem that we always look to people, and even if they have a dark past, we, we label them as by their dark past. So there's no hope for them, in some people's eyes, there's no hope for them for a return, because of their dark past. You know, this is actually the exact opposite of the message that Christ was teaching. You know, if you look at somebody like the Samaritan woman, she married, you know, uh, six or uh, five husbands. The one she's with now is not her husband. And did Christ, all he said to her is, you have no husband. Did he dwell on that? No. He was, look, he was more focused on who this lady could become. With a matter of moments, he made her from a sinner to an evangelist. In a matter of moments, right? The thief on the cross. What is he, what is he going to offer to the church? Nothing. Oh, but he did. He offered us a lot, right? I said that because some people think that tattoos are all right, and it doesn't seem like they're, they're all right, but... No, they're not. For, for those of us who know this, but I'm saying, you know... and I'm not sure, but it seems to me they're not. But then there's back and forth about it, but I think that it's... the end of the day, you know... Our, you I know, mean, just in case it isn't. Just, yeah. No, it, it's not. And it, it's against the, you know, the Bible, the Old Testament. And if you think about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, we should treat it as, as such. You know, how many of us would go into the church and graffiti the church? I don't think so. You know, it would be very inappropriate. Maybe even somebody who's a, you know, a non-believer would not do this out of respect for the place, right? Uh, Someone would argue putting icons. It's not graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> it's not graffiti. <laughs> Alright, so it says, Surely the fear of God is not in this place. <coughs> but indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not uh, the daughter of my mother. She became my wife. So kind of like what, what do they call it? Half, half brother, half, half brother, half sister. Um, so the question here, when Abraham said that she's my sister, was he lying or was he not? No. There's a Jewish saying that says, half truth is a full lie. Yeah. It wasn't the full truth. I would say what? If we are all here together and we're just kind of having a, a candid conversation with each other, it's like, oh, no, your name's uh, Sarah. Sarah, right? Sarah. Sarah, sorry, Sarah. And we're all having a conversation here, and Bell is talking, and yeah, I know, and then, you know, my great aunt is what, oh, so-and-so, and then Sam starts talking and saying, uh, oh, yeah, wow, that name's, wait a minute, that's my, uh, that's my grandmother. And you guys find out that you guys are related, right? And then, like, me and, say, my wife were here, and we're all talking, and we're like, yeah, you know what, actually, you know, we're half-sisters as well, you know? But in this kind of conversation, I would say, I could say she's my sister. Right, but when a king is coming to marry or take my wife, which relationship is more more important at this moment? 
that she's my sister or she's my wife. She's my wife, right? So because he said she's my sister in the wrong time, this made this a lot. He should have said that this is my wife, right? I just realized the point about that is also then all these other people think it's okay to marry your sister too. Uh, yeah, this was, uh, this was, you know, again, uh, it wasn't, uh, like, uh, back then this was the scenario, but now this isn't, no, this was clarified, you know, uh, yeah. New Testament. Marrying, marrying, uh, um, immediate relatives wasn't, uh, like, outlawed until the law of Moses in Exodus. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying, like, these people are Gentiles, so it's a good thing that they're not, uh, being holier than God's own chosen, that it's okay for all of them. But he may have had a sense that it maybe wasn't right, and mm -hmm. these people, but then again, he thought that they were going to be lower than him. It's just interesting. I never thought about like. So in, his, in Abraham's defense, um, the idea of here, one of the uh, comment, one of the uh, um, commentaries were, were saying that why did Abraham say this? And he just well, the first time he did it twice, and Isaac does the same thing. Um, they said that at the time it was common for uh, people to, if they found a woman attractive that was married, they'd go kill the husband to take the wife, right? So in Abraham's mind, all right, they were saying what that it's more <clears throat> expedient or it's better for Abraham to say that she's my sister and I live, at least what I can do, I can gather some people around and then go get her. But then if I say she's my sister and they kill me, then oh, there's nothing else that I can do, right? And we know Abraham, he had 318 servants back before this time even. And with those 318 servants, he conquered five kings. So he was no, you know, walk in the park. But he said, okay, maybe, so in his defense, maybe that's why he said she's my sister. So if somebody takes me, then I can come back and I can get her back, you know. But let's 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 uh, let's pose you know this scenario. Uh, suppose like uh, you know my wife, or we just get married, you know, whether you're a man or woman, you just get married on the wedding day, right? And then uh, and this is what he's going to say here in a minute. And then we're going to say, okay, uh, you know, honey, he looks astonishing today. You look great, you know, and because you look so good. I'm scared that you know somebody's going to get jealous of me and take you from me. Do you mind saying that you're my sister and not my wife? How would you ladies feel if your husband said that? Not be okay with that. Not be okay with that, right? Why? In this scenario, what's going to happen if uh, if she if uh, Abraham says uh, uh, um, if she says okay, then you know that we know what would happen. Uh, and what would happen if? If somebody came and uh, and uh, took Sarah, and she said, and she didn't agree to this, then her husband would die, and she wasn't okay with that. But if somebody, if she said, no, I'll say that you're uh, the sister, that I'm your sister, then she would be taken uh, to by another man. Uh, of course, any woman would wouldn't like this, but Sarah was different because Abraham wasn't willing to give his life for his wife. He wasn't saying, he wasn't willing to say, kill me, but you know, she's not going to marry another man. You have to kill me first, right? But she was what? She was willing to marry or to be another man's wife to save her what? Her husband. And this separation from
uh, her husband, her true husband, would be a death to their relationship. Because it would be an invasion of the relationship. It would be like a broken relationship. We can say this is a type of a death. If you look at the Coptic and the Coptic rite and the crowning ceremony, what happens? The, um, uh, the, the church gives, turns to the man and he tells the man, love your wife as what? Christ loved the church, right? So how did Christ love the church? Gave his life for the church, right? And then we turn to the woman uh, and we say, or to the bride, and we tell her, I want you to honor your husband as Sarah, and obey your husband as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And what happened when she obeyed Abraham? She was willing to give his life for him. So actually the command to both the husband and wife is the same but from two different, you know, people. From the husband, it says, love your wife and be willing to sacrifice your life for her. To the woman, through Sarah, say, love and honor your husband enough to sacrifice your life for him. Just like, just like Sarah did for Abraham and as Christ did to the church. Maybe God didn't um, rebuke Abraham because if he had, hadn't died, then he she would have ended up his wife anyway and that but this way it spared his life mm -hmm. and and, uh, and then and then god because of that still um protected them yes exactly and not only that he preached also the people of Gerar. so you see in just one action of god several people are are touched and moved and this is just the way that god works that's what i always ask that thy will be done question it seems like in this case, Sarah is going to be, like, I, I see the whole, like, death analogy, and I love it, but I also feel like it's through an action that is displeasing to God, that she would end up becoming another man's wife. Doesn't that, I feel like that um, doesn't jive with the plan of God, and that it's contrary to his express will. Uh, of course, God wouldn't desire this, but God looked at her obedience. You know, even in uh, the Old Testament, it says that I desire obedience over sacrifice. So, in obedience, it's giving of one's will uh, or submitting one's will to another. And this is the hardest thing as a person to do, is I have my own feelings, and even if they're right, and you know, Sarah would have been completely justified. She said, no, I'm going to say that you're my husband. Completely justified. But she went against her will for her husband, even when it was when it was wrong. In a married situation, you'll, you'll find sometimes what might happen is the husband and wife will have two different opinions, right? The wife's opinion might be the most correct opinion, and the husband might have an opinion which might be okay, but maybe not the best. Then what happens? Okay. What happened, you know, what happens, okay, say the wife says, okay, I think my wife, my way is better, but I'm going to uh, um, submit my will to my husband's, as long as it's not wrong, right? And then see what happens. And see what happens, and, you know, maybe God blesses it, maybe it turns out bad. But her obedience will lead to the building of this house far more than the argument saying, oh, I'm right, and let's do it this way and you know, insisting on, right, because then strife can happen. So there, there is uh, a value here to obedience, even if this scenario, 
And she had faith in God. And she said, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, with not faith in my husband, but faith in God who brought us together, right? It's just like, you know, okay, I, okay I'm going to go and say this, and I know that God you know, could save me from this, right? If, uh, yeah. Even if it seemed like something wrong, but her faith was, was very strong. Maybe they had a prophecy about it. Like, this is okay if we do this. Uh, maybe. Um, whatever it was, Sarah was an amazing person. I live by her faith, and by her faith and her obedience. You know, so um, she's one of those, you know, uh, special individuals. Um, so then what happens after that? Verse 14. Sorry. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. So what did he do? Abimelech gave a bunch of you know stuff and gifts to who? To Abraham. Give all these gifts to Abraham. Look at this. This just doesn't make sense, right? Abraham messed up. And then God appeared to him and threatened him, you're gonna die if you just, you know if you take this woman. Then the guy who messed up, who you know, made the mistake, is going to have to pay for you. And on top of that, you're going to have to give him gifts. Man, if I was Abraham, I'd like, this is a good gig, right? And if I mess up, I can do, I get all this. But this isn't, this isn't, you know, giving God's permission for whatever Abraham did. But this just shows us that God is gracious and merciful to us, right? Did Abraham deserve this? Certainly not. But God, in His grace, He gave him this. He allowed him to find favor in Abimelech's sight, and He gave him gifts that he didn't deserve. Right. So certainly, this isn't a pattern that Abraham would adopt. That I can just go on sinning, and God is going to bless me a hundred thousand fold uh, going forward. Um, and then, what does He do? Uh, <clears throat> and Abimelech said, "See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So let them go anywhere in the land." Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So, <clears throat> what does he do here? Hmm? She got rebuked by God. Yeah, no, thus she was rebuked, like vindicated. You know, uh, it's just a bad uh, English word there. Um, uh, so what happened here uh, is Abimelech not only gave Abraham gifts, but he also gave Sarah a thousand pieces of silver. And for what? All that happened was he took her in her house, kept her for a little bit, and gave her back. He, just to the embarrassment, he gives her a thousand pieces of silver. How much is this worth? Look at the time of Christ. You know, Judas sold Christ for how many pieces of silver? Thirty. Thirty which was the price of one slave at the time, right? Do you remember how much Joseph's brothers sold Joseph to the Midianites? Hmm? Twenty. Twenty. He sold them for twenty, right? For twenty pieces. So Abraham's before or after uh, Joseph? Before. Abraham's after Joseph? Before Joseph, right? So let's assume at the time of Abraham, one slave is worth ten pieces of silver. So how many slaves did he give? Two hundred. Two hundred. 
100. right? So he gave her, just for embarrassing her, the price of a hundred slaves. Compare this with Judas. And the guy messed up, right? Abraham messed up. And Judas sold the price for one slave who was blameless. So if we can look at Abimelech, this guy wasn't only honest, he was also very generous, right? He could have gave her one or two slaves, but he gave her a thousand pieces of silver. This was not a small you know, amount of money. So he was extremely generous. And he was, you know, uh, he was also honest in his dealings uh, with him, and he feared God. So look at the virtues that we see in Abimelech. Maybe, yes, at the conclusion we can see, maybe that's why God appeared to him, because he saw something in him. Just like what happened with, uh, with Cornelius. God saw that Cornelius was a man who was devout, and prayed, and fasted, and all these things, and God sent him uh, St. Peter. <clears throat> I hear someone thinking that a thousand there is because something about in the end times a thousand is used so much. Like, like it's supposed to allude to that. Like, a thousand has something to do with um, the ransom or something. Like, you know. Um, you know, a thousand, like, a thousand is like a, a perfect number. Um, but I didn't read any meditation or anything, any commentary from the fathers that made the connection between, you know, uh, that thousand and the meaning of perfection. Yeah, it was just this guy random that he was just saying, oh, look at this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it could be, I just didn't read it. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Um, so he gave her that much, you know, uh, money. So he was very generous. <clears throat> now the last uh, verse, or last two verses. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is very important because it tells us another virtue of Abimelech. So what happened here? As soon as Sarah went into the house, Abimelech got sick, and the women started stopped bearing children. So Sarah was not in Abimelech's palace for a day or two, because it, they wouldn't have known that the women stopped bearing children. You know, if we maybe let's just throw an arbitrary number out there. He had a hundred uh, female servants in his house. At any given month, somebody's being pregnant. Somebody's having a baby, right? If it's there for a year, you know, 12 months, and there are 100 women, and okay, man, every month somebody's giving birth. So it had to be long enough for them to notice why not any of the women giving birth, right? So this, some people were saying that there was a, uh, a certain right in Abimelech's uh, belief, like kind of like the engagement period, where somebody, would, the king would take a, a potential wife, have her stay in the house for a while, uh, for this observed period as an engagement, and then consume the marriage. So Abimelech apparently brought Sarah in and honored this time. He didn't touch her. You know, so he was very faithful in whatever it is that he believed. He believed, okay, there was a certain period that I should abstain. So he honored this period, and he didn't touch her. That's why when God approaches him, he says that I did this honestly. Kind of the integrity of my heart, meaning what that even the law that we have, I was abiding by it, and I'm the king, right? So maybe he had the authority to say, I you know, take her now and marry her tomorrow, right? But he didn't do that. 
So she was there for you know quite some time, maybe a couple of months, for them to notice something. But this shows us that Abimelech was a very faithful man. Uh, that he even um, you know observed this uh, this period. Um, so I think there are many lessons for us to learn, you know, from uh, this uh, chapter. And we see, I think, any of us who serve God that... Uh, even in the midst of our, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, feebleness and our sin and you know our mistakes and weaknesses, God can still use all of us to share His message with everyone. Um, and God is not waiting in heaven with a thunderbolt to you know jolt us with whenever we mess up. And it's very clear here: Abraham was a man of God. He loved God and he liked to serve Him, but he messed up. But we see God dealt with him with mercy and with grace. And he deals with each and every one of us as well. You know, even when we mess up, God is still going to take care of us. He's still, you know, his love will not be uh, withheld from us. Um, but at the same time, this shouldn't lead us to take his love and his grace for granted. You know, as Abraham didn't make this a pattern. Yes, he would do it one other time, or he did it one other time, but he was not, it's not a pattern of his life. Nor should we, as uh, St. Paul you know, uh, say, or it was saying that we should keep on sinning. You know, God forbid that we should, you know, so grace can abound, we just keep on sinning. Mm -hmm. no, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't mm -hmm. take that away. Um, we should be thankful for His grace and mercy and offer repentance. All right. You have any questions? I'm thinking, if it worked the first time, <laughs> sure, maybe. We will need it the second time, but let's not, you know, uh, Bank on it because at the end of the day, God is still just. There are many examples of that in the Bible, right? Um, where you know, there will be a time where justice will be served, and this is in all fairness, right? Um, so let's just uh, store up for ourselves all of the mercy through our repentance, uh, that uh, in the day of judgment, you know, we will find mercy and we will find favor in the Lord's eyes. Other questions? I think it was a revelation after thinking it now that he would do it again, that maybe God told him and it's just not written in the story. Yeah, we can speculate, but let's just go with what we have written <laughs> and what the fathers were going to explain. Glory be to God forever.